people who, let's face it, who have not, you know, drunk the modern art Kool-Aid, they expect art to have a message. And also museum directors realize that everything they do has a message, right? Everything they put up or not will have a message. So that's, it's all about messaging, which is, you know, important, but it's not where Augustine was, was at <laughs> at all. And the, um, you know, the power of the paintings and the sort of enduring interest is that we have to figure them out. We have to figure them out and they cannot really be figured out, probably. <laughs> Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live Arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maniker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. Philip Gustin Now, a monumental retrospective of the artist's work, opened at the National Gallery in Washington this month. Gustin's legacy was recently cemented by a large donation of 220 works from the collection of Musa Mayer, the artist's daughter, to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Many of the paintings in that donation are included in the National Gallery show, which will travel to the Tate in London next. To get a better understanding of the artist, I spoke to Harry Cooper, curator of the show and head of the National Gallery's Department of Modern Art. We spoke just after the preview of the exhibition, where Musa Mayer accompanied Cooper and other visitors through the show. I also wanted to get a better sense of the Gustin market. To do that, I turned to Claude Reich, a French collector who is also a vocal advocate for Gustin on social media. The result is a two-part podcast that runs a bit longer than usual, but I think is worth the extra time. I hope you enjoy it. I just wanted to start with the title of the show, since I know it's been an important thing. Calling it Philip Gustin Now uh, was meant to, I think when you started this, how many, six years ago, was meant to sort of discuss the relevance of his art. I'm assuming both, uh, you know, uh, aesthetically, but also uh, the political relevance of uh, his work. It got overtaken by this much broader uh, issue, which I'd obviously like you to talk about to start with. But I also think there's another element of what now could mean beyond the political side, which I'd like to get to after that. So with that as a, um, a background, could you explain a little bit why it's uh, Philip Gustin now? And then maybe we can talk Talk a bit about the controversy yeah. and how it's been addressed. Yeah, I believe the now was Mark Godfrey's suggestion. And um, Mark was one of the uh, four original curators of the show that, you know, I launched, but we quickly got some other museum partners. And um, so I think that was his idea. Um, and I, um, I'm i not positive why he he thought that, but but I think what it picks up on is, um, you know, just uh, how much Gustin has stayed in, in the conversation, you know, with young artists and, and not young artists, you know, um, whether it's Boslitz or, you know, Amy Selman or, you know, Rikri Irvania um, or even younger artists. So, um, and, and we, we we wanted those uh, voices, you know, in the catalog, voices of various artists um, as well. So I think, you know, it's probably part of, of uh, a certain kind of wave that's passing over museums, or maybe it's here to stay, which is to, you know, try to make things relevant and um, exciting 
and uh, of the moment. Well, you certainly made it exciting because <laughs> uh, things uh, overtook the show and the um, presence of uh, the depictions of uh, Klansmen has become a, a controversial or became a controversial issue several years ago, combined with the summer protests around George Floyd's murder. Yeah. Uh, the decision was made uh, to postpone the show uh, for two or three years. And then when the f show first appeared in Boston, there were a number of accommodations and sort of elaborate uh, warnings uh, about people who might be offended by those uh, images. I, I guess I I'm curious to know, did anyone uh, express offense who, who went to those uh, shows, the one in Boston, maybe the one in Houston? I don't know. I, I don't know, to be honest. Um, you know, and, and of course, there's, um, there's expressing offense and being offended. And, and, and there, there may well have been lots of people who, you know, uh, might not have wanted to talk about it, but felt, felt uh, discomforted uh, in some way. Um, Pe people who did want to talk about it were the guards in many of the museums that were planning the shows and Darren Walker, whose Ford Foundation was a major funder, and part of the decision to delay was based on their concerns and input of having these images, whatever the uh, origin of the images being shown, you know, publicly with some sort of approval in that uh, 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 period. So, I, you know, it, we've just seen a preview of the show and Musa Mayer, uh, uh, Gustin's daughter, spoke just before the opening and one of her comments was that she was grateful for the struggle. Mm -hmm. And I, I took that to mean that you know the show is better for having had a, a few years and have, uh, having had the inclusion of many different uh, uh, communities in thinking about how the show would be uh, uh, received. Uh, do you have you know? Do you share in that that, or is it a different experience um, that you had going through these these sort of two prior uh, mountings of the show? Yeah, I think um, you know we all had our own experiences, and I, um, I, it was it was um, difficult for the for the Gustin uh, Foundation and uh, for um, for Musa, um, and I think that um, uh, she um, is delighted with the show. You know, and um, would have been delighted if the show had happened uh, on schedule. <laughs> Let's just say that. Um, and in fact, it, you know, I was not involved in the decision to uh, postpone. None of the curators were. I don't think any curator wants their show to be postponed, really, for any reason. You'd have a hard time finding a curator who would say, "Yeah, that's a great idea. Let's postpone the show and go into a, um, a sort of tornado of work to try to reschedule it." <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, certainly, the the directors. Um, uh, shared, you know, shared the decision, and 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 and, um, and um, you know, we had our conversations, and um, I think that. Uh you know, while I while I was uh, I was surprised, um, I was worried. I was uh, worried about the fate of the show in general because that postponement happened without setting a, uh, a a coming date. And I think the directors have said that that was a mistake. Um, so there was a lot of anxiety around it. And um, um, you know, but uh, having having more time is not a bad thing. <laughs> it's not a bad thing. And I think. Um, it wasn't just having more time, but it was um, sort of thinking. Uh, for for me, um, I mean, there were a lot of things that happened, and as 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 um, Kaywin was saying, um, we did a lot of internal work, and she uh, not necessarily focused on Gustin. She wanted to um, make some hires, 
bring more diversity to management. Um, and and uh, and and um, there were great conversations with the guards that you just mentioned. Um, but for me, it really, um, you know, while we anticipated, you know, all of this in a sense, the catalog um, is dealing with 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 hate, with trauma, with the clan, with um, the. Um, you know, uh, the, the, uh, effect on African American viewers. You know, no accident we got Glenn Ligon and others to write for the catalog. We thought we had maybe covered our bases because <laughs> we knew this was going to be difficult material. I don't think we knew how difficult, I guess. And then, um, you know, I've thought, you know, for now, for two years about sort of more about the power of the, of the work. It does kind of magnify it. It sort of clarifies that this, he is dealing with, with powerful, at times toxic, you know, um, uh, kind of lightning rod material. And, and um, I think, uh, um, you know, that's that was good for me to think about and then to think about how to, how to present that and how to just, you know, make that part of the story that he's dealing with these forces, you know, as he said. So, yeah. And you said something uh, as we just walked through the show that I think is relevant to that, which is, uh, you know, he is a very personal idiosyncratic artist dealing with very private things in an extremely public way. Yeah. So whatever his he's depicting with those uh, clansmen is very nuanced. Musa doesn't have a, a clear explanation either in her memoir or in person. You make the same that it's not entirely clear what he's trying to do there. So it's 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 not like this is going to be read uh, easily and something that nuanced in this different context. And I, and I, I do think one of the issues has nothing to do with Gustin. It has to do with the institutions. Well, if the institutions and when the institutions show that they are better at addressing these broader issues, it may be, I wouldn't say easy, but easier yeah. to present some of these things yeah. without people fe feeling like nobody cares yeah. and nobody thinks about it. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but I, I agree with you totally that the, these images are sort of multi-stable, sort of, you know, ambiguous uh, constellations of things. And um, depicting the clan is is sort of bad enough. And then the self-portrait as a Klansman is, is like even a step, a step further. And I uh, just was lately thinking about the um, Groucho Marx line, I, you know, I would never join a club that would have me as a member. And in a way, this is of a piece with that that kind of that kind of humor, Jewish humor, kind of uh, self hatred, if you if you want to go there, but also that curiosity about wanting to take both positions: the position of the you know the the social director of a racist club and the person who is being targeted and. I mean, he, he uh, loved Isaac Babel and those short stories about Red Cavalry and Babel the Jew riding with the Cossacks on their pogroms. And, you know, it's just sort of mind bending. But, you know, what happens when you bend your mind that way, I think Gustin was, was very interested in. And, I mean, comedians get in trouble all the time. And I think there is an aspect of that kind of, that kind of edgy uh, comedy in the world. Yeah, and it's easy to take out of context, but I think pointing comedy is a good uh, example. When when it lands, everyone recognizes right. it. When it doesn't, it, it fails totally. It fails totally. Yeah, absolutely. So the other sense of now that I wanted to ask you about is this doing very private things in public ways, using cartoon imagery, uh, the, the this sort of return to figuration. There is something about Gustin in our Instagram era, a man who by all accounts of, you know, reading uh, Moose's me memoir, reading the, the scholarship, unbelievably self-absorbed. Uh, his his work is very self-absorbed. We just mentioned it's filled with all these symbols. He keeps creating these languages. He's, he's uh, restless and, you know, uh, uh, unable to 
take much pleasure in success. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a pervading sense of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Well, this is where I'm going with all this. Yeah. There's a pervading sense of anxiety mm-hmm. to his work, especially the late work. Yeah. And it seems to me that is a very now mm-hmm. issue, mm-hmm. this pervasive sense of anxiety we have as a society and a cu- culture. And I don't know how one necessarily draws a direct line to it, but it certainly seems he's more relevant now than maybe he was in the 70s and 80s when people struggled with this re- return to figuration. Yeah, yeah. Um, I am not a, a, a social historian, and I often don't have my finger on the pulse of, of, of anything. And you can, you know, I mean, just for example, I, and I, I spent my years in high school listening to, like, avant-garde jazz instead of rock and roll, and I didn't know anything about, you know, what most people were grooving on. So, um, you know, I, I, yeah, there's huge anxiety, but I think there's been huge anxiety, you know, among different sets of people since whenever. I mean, 1913. Since 1913, when Gustin was born, let's say, you know, what are the anxieties? World War One, the Great Depression, World War Two. The Holocaust, Vietnam, civil rights, and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, maybe, I mean, certainly, like, in the 50s, there's, okay, there's, like, you know, Eisenhower era, complacency, whatever, prosperity. But, but the artists in New York weren't feeling any of that. They were, they were horribly anxious about, you know, what, what could art do, you know, uh, after the war. So, um, I think, um, you know, I think this Philip Gustin now would have been a good title for this show, probably uh, at any at any point in time <laughs> that I can that I can think of. So, in other words, don't bother me with Instagram. <laughs> I, you, you're free to make it as relevant as you want. I'm I'm not sure I would would uh, necessarily um, subscribe. So, uh, let, let, let me make good use of your time, which is to ask you specifically about Gustin. I think what's sort of forgotten in all of the controversy of the later work and is that he was a very successful artist as a very young man. Yes. In the terms of what an artist could be in America in the 30s and 40s, he was basically it. He, he, yeah. he got big commissions, he, he yeah. constant work, yeah. uh, uh, led to teaching uh, 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 yeah. gigs. I mean, he was uh, very much on his way to being you know, a classic immigrant uh, success story right, right into right. the ma- mainstream yeah. of, uh, of yeah. things. Um, and then he makes, he wants to be part of what's going on yeah. in, in, in New York, right. and he j- joins that club of people at the automat right. and at the bar arguing right. constantly about what art ca- can, can be. Um, talk a little bit about that success. I mean, I think that's sort of underemphasized, not for any other reason that there's so much more the l- later, but it's kind of uh, important to remember how right. successful. It right, is. right. Um, yeah, I think that. Um, I mean, one thing about about the uh, the depression was it was a great time for artists, you know, because of the WPA. And uh, thank God, you know, they they got work, uh, they got some training in many cases with with um, you know established uh, artists, and um, so uh, he had that. You know, uh, degree of success as a as a as a muralist, and um, a lot of other artists did too. You know, and he didn't get every commission, and um, sometimes he got the second slot, like in the GSA building here, um, and uh, sometimes, like in one of the drawings we we have for the, uh, the Queens Bridge uh, housing project, um, the initial design was largely rejected because it was too depressing. <laughs> you know, um, but uh, nonetheless, he you know he he got a lot of 
a lot of work and um and then uh, um you know when he when he gets uh you know he moves into more more easel painting um in mid 40s and uh um that that work was was very popular and it got into magazines right and it won prizes paintings like sentimental moment you know and um uh, we forget that it's it's great that you you bring that up um and you know i think that um he's very young he's very young right born 913 so he's having the success um in his uh 20s um and thank god he realized that um success wasn't everything and because if he had continued to do that kind of sort of beckman crossed with a nice um venetian sort of touch you know he would have become like one of those painters that's in the in the you know rack of the museum you know who were very popular like pavel chelichev or somebody somebody like that you know and um somehow he realized that i think partly it had to do with with his um with his love of art history and he set these standards for himself and i think he realized at some point he's not quite coming up to them you know or he's not satisfied with what he's doing i don't think it's just that you know i mean it's partly that you know maybe he felt you know he couldn't you know he couldn't um process some certain things in this kind of work, you know, that it was too pretty or, you know, um, not deep enough. And maybe the figure, you know, can there be poetry after Auschwitz, all of that, maybe it just wasn't going to happen. But I, I don't think it was in, entirely that. It was also that um, he just um, was maturing and, uh, you know, growing out of that those, that style and, and, and getting a sense from Pollock and other people that you know that there was um, there were there there was more ambition out there. You know, for him, there's nothing in the in the documentation. Uh, maybe Dory Ashton ha has it, uh, but it certainly seems like he has a very good sense that whatever that success is, it's based on something that kind of is going away. Right. Uh, and you can have a nice academic appointment and basically teach people to to, to right. paint, but that's not if you're a very competitive artist, as he clearly is. That's not where the big show is. And he figures out either because, you know, he's uh, high school buddies with Jackson Pollock and, and has some sense of what's going on in New York or because of his past experience yeah. and friends in New York, that, that that's where the action is and gets himself yeah. ba back into the, right. the action. Right. And winning the Carnegie Prize is OK. But, you know, um, getting someone like de Kooning to, you know, um, like your work is even better. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh yeah, so I think I think he he knew. I mean, he had been to New York already, so he knew, you know, what was what was there basically. And um, he's reading he's reading the papers and the magazines and all of that. Um, he he's in Life magazine. What two three years before Pollock is is right. you know blown up in Life magazine. Yeah, but I think that that rhythm that's a rhythm in the career. You know, yeah. as we as we talked about. So he becomes a very successful uh, abstract painter in New York. He somewhat falls out of love with the constant hanging around and uh, talking with people and retreats to Woodstock. It's clearly as much as personality as, as anything else. Um, and and sort of the, you have a great room in the show where it's, I think you sort of described it as, as almost like a, a, a relief to walk into it from there. And, and that you didn't purposely didn't put much wall text so that there wasn't the distraction of reading things. You just experienced the, the, this uh, work and especially that 52, 53 period or, you know, uh, uh, early fifties period that people love so much, uh, in retrospect. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I think that that, um, you know, Augustine is all, he's always talking. He's a great talker, right? And uh, not writing that much. Um, uh, when he writes, he's, he goes over draft, many drafts and, you know, um, not satisfied. But talking is, is, is natural. Um, and there's a lot of talk uh, in that era. But it's, um, they're not talking about specific uh, paintings, of course. You know, the idea is that, you know, this is direct painting and um, it, should, it should speak. And if it, it either works or it doesn't. It either, you know, um, uh, holds or not you know, holds the wall, all of that sort of sort of vocabulary that they were using. So I didn't want to, you know, mess that up with, it would be ahistorical to, you know, write little essays on every one of those paintings. But, and also they're harder to talk about, you know, um, unless you want to really uh, talk about, um, you know, forms that are there, that they're there to see. Um, so, uh, you know, there were some critics like um, Leo Steinberg who saw, who started to see um, anxiety in those paintings and he, he saw it emerging and, and, um, before anyone else did, when everyone else was talking about abstract impressionism, he saw he saw something else happening. But hopefully, just in that that big spiraling area of the show, you can see that you know the viewer can see the form starting to tangle and starting to creep and crawl over one another, and black kind of starting to emerge and some feeling of threat and all of that. Hopefully, that and you so you go from that ah that relief of like walking into this beautiful uh, early fifties and suddenly oh I'm not so relieved after all, and uh, and you know and the career just keeps on the, the wheel turns. Yeah. Again, well, so many people are so wedded to the idea of the, the that brief moment being uh, what Gustin should be, and you know, uh, being upset to see it it, it, it pass. Yeah. And at least in the show, you can see how one emerges out of the other. And in those gray black paintings, you can begin to see the you know at least the lines of the later work. Um, and and you do a nice job of showing there's these vocabularies he keeps making. There's there's one that's just a series of lines, and there's one that are, that are representations. And you present them as you know these two things, kind of mark making versus I I image depiction, kind of uh, the thing he's struggling with in this sort of period. Right. Right. And and there are moments when he is uh, wonderfully clear about what's going on and that's one of them where in his letters he's talking about this, this struggle um, you know between abstraction and figuration and uh, I kind of suspect that he knew how it was going to end all along <laughs> you know it's there's a logic to it right there's this feeling of something in inevitable happening as he's living into the later 60s and you know watching the news and and having these uh, flashback moments, uh, really, to um, to his his early work, where he's uh, an engaged artist, where he's trying to contain and, and convey politics and anti-fascist and you know uh, politics, and so. Um, that um, you know, it just makes sense that that um, the '60s, the late '60s, would 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 trigger something. But you know, it didn't trigger something for everybody. <laughs> so, um, but even for him. for him, it doesn't. It's not a return to the very clear politics of his work in the '30s. You know, yes, he's more connected to um, you know the, the the leftist movements, and the murals are are murals. They're meant yeah. to you know be didactic right. in, in a way. But when the figuration returns, it, it, none of it's straightforward. Right. Everything's these symbols that are open to so much yes. interpretation. Right. right. He is he is uh, pretty much done with the Mexican muralist. That was a <laughs> that was an important phase. But um, yeah, I mean that painting bombardment, the 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 tondo that that has a message. Right, I mean, it's a great painting, but it has a message. You know, uh, war is terrible. Uh, bombing civilians is even worse. You know, um, and we 
don't get those messages from the 1970 uh, on. And I think that's one thing that um, has people, has had people for the last few years so upset because people who, let's face it, who have not, you know, drunk the modern art Kool-Aid, they expect art to have a message. And also museum directors realize that everything they do has a message, right? Everything they put up or not will have a message. So that's, it's all about messaging, which is, you know, important, but it's not where Augustine was, was at <laughs> at all. And the, um, you know, the power of the paintings and the sort of enduring interest is that um, we have to figure them out. We have yeah. to figure them out. And they cannot really be figured out, um, uh, probably. <laughs> but he also, I mean, there's also something about his, he's such an idiosyncratic personality. He can't fit into that any longer. He can't just be a political message because that would be about the message, not about him. And, you know, the this turn comes after the uh, Guggenheim retrospective in 62. He's depressed. He goes through this sort of conflicted moment. He emerges with all of this work eventually, and it gets shown at Marlboro. Also, there's the, the Jewish Museum show in 1966 where he shows all his black blobs. And, and again, it's like, you know... Even more, nobody likes these, and what am I going to? What am I? Going, what am I doing? And uh, well, I just I I really wanted to get to this concept that uh, de Kooning in, introduces that you know for him it's about freedom. Yes. Uh, that, that his art is about his personal freedom to depict whatever you know obsesses him, and if it melds these other social elements to right. to it. Uh, that's clearly he's he's thinking about and engaged in, right. in this, but he ultimately he's an artist who it's about him. And de Kooning sort of puts his yeah. finger on it. He seems to say, yeah. you know, you, right. you you got me. Yes. And yeah. and at least the retreat back to Woodstock, this later period where there's a huge amount of work, uh, is the full freedom. Uh, I think Roberta Smith in a, a piece like written in the middle of that in the late 70s sort of talks about him becoming a young artist, you know, in this sense of both having sort of full powers, but also not really caring. You bring up that idea of, you know, you start in the studio with all the other, all of art history, yeah. everyone else with you, and you end sort of just with yourself and maybe even then getting rid of yourself. Right. Not sure Augustine, the way he's described, yeah. was, was self-abnegating, but it, right. it, there, there is, I mean, one of the nice things about this show is to see how much post-Marlboro 70s to early 80s work there there is, and this is just a small uh, a tiny tip of the iceberg. Tiny. I mean, if anything, I uh, compared to other retrospectives, we've got more 50s work. <laughs> I mean, some shows have been swamped by the 70s because it's a huge output, and and uh, the work was uh, still in the estate, e easier to to, to uh, borrow, and um, and also very compelling, you know, and uh, immediately kind of kind of um, you know engaging. Um, but I think um, the, the de Kooning uh, sort of embrace was very important to him, and and the story he he told you know, over and over. Um, and I think, too, that, um, you know, for him at that point, it's it's art, art is primary. Art is primary. Painting is primary for him, whatever else he's trying to deal with and process. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, the painters he, he liked are the eccentric painters like like uh, Piero and what he says about Piero and what a bizarre composition the, the um, baptism of Christ is or the flagellation, you know, both of which he has on his on his bulletin board. And, and so um, for him, there's this standard of being an artist is being an eccentric who is not obeying the rules, who is certainly not painting with a message, who's not painting for court or, you know, or church or uh, even, you know, um, Greenberg <laughs> or, uh, 
or Clement, you know, <laughs> Clement, thank you, or um, you know, whoever's in power at the moment. In fact, it's painting, you know, against that probably. Uh, so I think, in a funny way, I mean, you're saying he 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 sort of becomes very much um, sort of a free agent who who you know can do whatever he wants. But but I think he's um, what enables that is his sort of uh, admiration for for these painters of the past who who represent that you know Goya for him, for example, or whoever whoever it might be. And there are different ones that you know come and go. Well, I think that's what's so hard to see in the paintings, except for that painting that mentions the artist uh, by, by name, yeah. it, without you know being a, a, a curator, is how fixated he is on art history. Yeah. What appears to the rest of the world is these odd sort of comic book uh, paintings right. are actually deeply engaged with yes. the, the the same things. And Roberta Smith makes a real point about there's, a, you know, the, the, the abstract work is actually just a brief moment in a long career of struggling with, you know, yeah. how to paint the way these um, masters do, do and his sense of what the appropriate version of that is. And I think it's worth, I guess, one of the things I wanted to ask you is what's also interesting about the 70s works is they're not all the same. There's a lot of range of, uh, you know, there, there are some things that are very finely drawn. There are other things that are very loosely. There's a weird sort of transparencies that we, we see some of the, the scumbling of the um, black and gray paintings, in, but in reds and, and blacks. I mean, it's, it's like there's, yeah. there's a lot of different things going on in a, a relatively short period. Period, right, right. I mean, even in the in the Marlboro uh, exhibition, which we sort of one third recreated, um, I noticed that um, there's two paintings in our room that are very different, and that the the um, city uh, limits and uh, blackboard um, next to each other. Um, and I noticed that they're they're dated '69. Uh, they probably came early in his very productive, you know, whatever year and a half. And um, they they have a lot more of, of the sort of uh, messy. Uh, uh, red, black, you know, brushwork, and they're not as vivid and cartoony as as the other one. So you know, even in this show, he's he's there's a lot of difference. And then yeah, when you get into into um, uh, I think um, especially you know the very the very last uh, couple of years where we would like to think that he's in a dark mood you know, and his health is deteriorating, sort of like with Rothko. And I think that's actually a good parallel. You know, for a long time, people thought, well, Rothko ended with these dark paintings, but he also did a lot of pastel paintings <laughs> at the very end. And Gustin is, you know, there's there's a sunlight, if you want, or, you know, shining through those small uh, ink and acrylic paintings, which are so um, uh, fun and uh, joyful and uh, involved with pleasures of daily life, as well as maybe some allusion to like Sisyphus pushing a rock up a hill and and, uh, you know, his own gravestone, which he's marked PG 1980. But, you know, I mean, there's uh, the dark and the light, you know, that I think that, you know, that's uh, certainly one of the things that, um, thank goodness, makes makes for, uh, you know, just just a more varied and uh, entertaining experience. If we can even, he would hate the word entertainment, but. <laughs> well, look, I, I, it is certainly a show that was well worth waiting for. And it is the kind of show that I think uh, there's so much to be learned about, you know, an artist that, uh, unfortunately, we only know from the apostasy, you know, story and, right. and, and the controversy. 
controversy ar around that and to be able to sort of start fresh and see this sort of whole continuum and see how much work and what uh, preoccupied him has been a real, um, I think it's an eye-opener and I hope the reception is the same that people so far, come to So that. far, so good. I love, I love the idea of starting fresh. I, I think uh, that would be a great headline for for something so maybe that's the now the now is <laughs> yes, let's right. start from now right and figure Square out one yeah and and uh we can maybe let leave some things behind and just try to try to look at him uh you know uh anew yeah great harry thank you for doing this i appreciate great it. questions obviously you've done tons of homework and i appreciate that <laughs> hello claude how are you good how are you good to see you a and you I, I bring you um, greetings from Musa Mayer, who was very excited to hear your name when I saw her in Washington. That's a lovely lady. So you saw her the other day? Yes. Uh, I, you know, uh, she came around the preview of the show with the group of people and uh, spent a great deal of time commenting uh, along with um, Harry Cooper, the uh, curator. So it was, it was sort of the culmination of uh a long long period in her life and she was clearly there to enjoy it and you know soak it in well i'm really glad for her she deserves it so uh... put a little context around all of this i mean there is this whole story of the delay of the show and we can talk about that but i think that's less pressing right now than gustin's prominence as an artist which is what the show's meant to to achieve and you know that is Musa Mayer's life's work uh, uh, in many ways. And so it is the culmination of that. The, her uh, donation to um, the Metropolitan Museum is all of a piece with that. In fact, this show contains a good portion of that donation. So it's almost like the tour before it ends up uh, uh, at the Met. And I think, as you rightly point out, they very, um, I don't know, whether they did it intentionally, but they've ended up sort of having this trial run for the show by having it in Boston and Houston, now bringing it to Washington. And then I think the real, you know, opening is going to be when it gets... No to offense to Boston and, uh, and Houston, of course. No offense to uh, the great museums, but... No, and I think what even more importantly is, and, and several people involved with it have said, because of the controversy, there was a lot to work out. And so in Boston, overreacting to the controversy, the show got kind of muddy. There were just too many curators involved in it. And as, uh, you know, the, the trigger warnings uh, were done in a ham-handed way, the... the, the What's so interesting, you had asked me to ask, and I asked Harry Cooper if anyone complained, and the answer is no. Now, you could say no one complained because they did their job and warned people, but it may also be that the fears of complaints were uh, not connected to Gustin and more connected to the museum. I think one of the most interesting things that came out of the press presentation was the director of the National Gallery made the point that the delay of the Gustin show wasn't about Gustin's work. It was about the gallery needing to make sure it had better relations with its staff and a better understanding throughout the institution of its understanding of these issues around racism so that if you're showing very nuanced, uh, uh, ambiguous images of Klansmen, no one there has to feel like they're being endorsed as Klansmen, that the, the white supremacy is being endorsed. And, I, and so it really was on the National Gallery to do their work before they could do the show. Gustin just sort of got caught up in the, um, 
uh, in the conflict. And and I guess this sort of does go to the one of the things I I, I want to ask you about because. Gustin is a very difficult artist to understand. And even after going through the show where where you see his career and you understand a lot more about him, the images themselves are still open to interpretation. In fact, one of the things that Harry Cooper and Musa Mayer were emphatic about is, what do these paintings mean? What do you think they mean? I mean, someone as intimately involved with her father as, as Musa Mayer didn't want to offer interpretations, shrugged a lot of the times or said, you know, it's not really clear what he was trying to accomplish here. And so I thought that might be a good place to sort of talk about whether his market is somewhat affected by that, or even just forget the market terms, understanding this sort of importance of Philip Gustin as a, a, an artist and, and you as a collector of Gustin's work and, you know, intimately involved in his market, I thought you might be able to give us the perspective of people who are passionate about it. Yes. So uh, just to introduce myself shortly uh, in relation to Gustin, I've been collecting Gustin for 20 years now uh, through the McKee Gary when they were still in the market. Uh, and he's definitely the my favorite topic. So uh, if I'm getting too long, you just interrupt me. Uh, as far as the interpretation of his works are concerned, uh, there's a telling story that Gustin would always tell about Morton Feldman, the musician who used to be one of his, one of his best friends and he, with whom he fell out after the uh, famous 1970 Marlboro show. And there's Morton Feldman staring at one of those figure, so-called figurative cartoonish paintings. And he looks at one element and he asks Gustin, well, what is it exactly, a typewriter or what? Then Gustin looks at him angry and says, well, you don't, you don't recognize a two by four with nails on it? So, you know, that's the interpretation of these works. And that's what makes these works very strong is open to uh, any, you know, any opinion. Uh, and I think you cannot say this um, when you look at the Rothko, when you look at the Pollock. Uh, it's also telling to imagine that... Uh, a Rothko exhibition or a Pollock exhibition, however great those artists are, would not have generated such a controversy. I mean, you know, they would have gone ahead and I don't think any curator would have been fired uh, on a Rothko show or on a Pollock show. So, um, um, and I'm not going to come back on that, uh, you know, that failed cancellation, whatever you call it. Uh, I think that your point is very good. Uh, the fact that he's not an easy artist to uh, pass, to, to, you know, to understand uh, is... Uh, I would say is an issue uh, for uh, his market. Uh, I think he's way, way, way undervalued. Uh, disclaimer: I'm obviously involved in that market, so I mean, you know, <laughs> apart from uh, from this biased opinion, he is undervalued if you compare it to other greats of the uh, post-war American scene. Um, I mean, the record on the market is for an abstract work called Two Fellini, which was sold in 2013 for 25 million dollars by Christie's, if I remember well. So, I mean, it's a huge amount of money uh, by any standard. But uh, if you compare to, uh, you know, uh, $70 million for Twombly, uh, $80 million for Drotko, uh, uh, not even mentioning Pollock in, in private. Uh, so, you know, um, yes, he, he, he is not what they call a market-friendly artist. But uh, with every year passing, his stature in the market, and in history, by the way, uh, and this is parallel, is growing. 
So um, that controversy um, around his hood paintings, to me, is only telling of his importance. It's it's a testimony to it, to his importance. That's my main point. No, no, I I I think that that part is is clear. Uh, and and you know what what's so interesting about the hood paintings is they are a fairly small period in a very diverse career. One of the great things about this show is you know, and, and I discussed this with Harry Cooper, you know, it, it we forget that he was a, one of the most successful artists of his generation in the 30s at a very young age, that as a mural painter and an easel painter, he's very widely recognized. He uh, could have stayed teaching and had a, you know, perfectly good middle-class existence, you know, been a quite successful, famous artist, probably forgotten to history by now because there are numerous of other artists of the, that period who were just as successful, who very few people, you know, non-art historians uh, are aware of. And then he basically decides he needs to be part of where the action is and joins, goes, goes to New York, joins his buddy Pollock, succeeds as an abstract expressionist for for lack of a better term you know uh, a, a member of that school is a peer of um de kooning's i mean basically he has it all and then whatever drives him he needs to go forward into this uh you know figuration and we get you know the the clansmen but we also get a whole lot of other work and i think one of the the striking things about the show is the famous Marlboro Gallery show, they try to replicate it with like a dozen works in one room. They're very large works. And that room is very impressive and quite overwhelming. And then you're told that this is only about a third of what was in the actual Marlboro show, that there were 30 paintings. And and forget the subject matter. I can't imagine the effect of all of that work in one show, trying to see it all in one night on this sort of world of people, let alone the fact that it had these these strange, figurative, cartoonish uh, images in them. Yeah, um, that show, um, and there are several famous quotes about that show, and I think the most um, uh, relevant one is uh, the Kooning's comment um, that Gaston uh, uh, reports when he's interviewed by Michael Blackwood in the famous uh, film that Michael Blackwood shot in the early 70s. Gaston said that de Kooning told him, look, uh, don't worry about everybody's reactions. What do they think, that we're on the Bales baseball team? So, you know, that's that's also why I think Gaston is very important and probably more important than any other of his peers, uh, with the exception of de Kooning, maybe. It's because he has that capacity to change. So he doesn't uh, he doesn't belong, belong to any baseball team. When we say abstract expressionism, for instance. There are many cliches regarding Gustin and abstract expressionism. One of uh, those cliches being that he's a latecomer to abstract expressionism, which is totally stupid because he, you, when you look at his you know, paintings of the early and mid-40s, they're already a uh, quote-unquote uh, abstract expressionist. So uh, my main point here is that uh, it's his capacity to change when his peers didn't change, uh, you know, you, I'm not going to name names, but I am. Uh, Barnett Newman and his Sublime, uh, Rothko and his fantastic color field paintings. I mean, Rothko did the same thing for 20 years, whatever you say. Uh, well, Klein, unfortunately, didn't live long, live long enough to, to, to change. But I mean, they're all, uh, again, with the exception of the Kooning, they're all you know, basically uh, in their comfort zone, uh, which is not the case uh, for Gaston. And the market likes uh, a comfort zone. 
the market doesn't like, I mean, you look at what's selling right now. I mean, it's it's comfort zone, definitely. So uh, same for Gaston, you know, you stand on it. Would you want to have a hood in your living room? Yes, I would. But, uh, you know, um, it's probably not the case for uh, uh, your average uh, run-of-the-mill collector, you know. So, uh, well, here I can make a parenthesis and say that Hauser did a pretty good work, how then worth in developing the Chinese, the Asian market, for instance, for Gaston, because that was not a given, you know. You, so that in that, they did a pretty good work. But, uh, I mean, he's a challenging uh, artist on many, uh, many aspects, and this is what bestows some people. Uh, also, probably the, uh, some, you know, uh, museum directors who probably, uh, I mean, I, I understand that their work is pretty tough and they have to, uh, they have many uh, political pressures on all sides. So Gaston was a bit of a risky uh, gamble. Uh, it's interesting to note that in the catalog, which was published before uh, the show was uh, was cancelled or postponed, uh, the um, the actual cause of the, the uh, postponement is very uh, lightly broached. Uh, there is a there is a Glenn Lagan essay uh, which is very you know in, interesting, very interesting and insightful, but pretty non-committal. Um, apart from that, there are very few mentions of uh, the race issue. So um, uh, it's interesting to see how complex and um, uh, challenging these works are to the point that even museum curators did not realize when they mounted the show that one of the main aspects was being o- almost totally overlooked. So, um, Look, you, you could have a very successful show of his work and just not include any of the hood paintings. I don't think it would be smart or make a, a, a you know historically uh, accurate. But if that were just your concern, and I don't think you know the hoods themselves are so clearly uh, about his own obsession and self-absorption uh, in co- context that it, it, again it becomes a, a distraction. And I think you know as we've seen the when the um, smaller panels and even some of there's some larger hoods. I think the forty by forty that was sold a few years ago they've sold well. So I don't think that subject matter turns um, buyers off in the way that, you know, some other artists, controversial subject matter makes great, you know, sort of museum work, but not good uh, uh, market work. I think that the going through the catalog raisonné and through this uh, uh, collection uh, for the show, I was struck by the quality of the collectors named. And obviously there are many others who who aren't named, but let me just give you a, a, a brief list. Aaron Fleischman, Marguerite Hoffman, Graham Gund, uh, the Railses, Glenstone have multiple uh, works, Martin Margulies, uh, Richard and Ruth Rogers have several uh, works. Uh, the Fishers owned a couple. They're now at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. Raymond Learsey had donated a few. The Eugene, uh, Eugene Broida, Broida, the collector who owned, uh, I guess, like a hundred. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, donated them around. And Musa Gustin donated many uh, works to museums. The Maclos uh, uh, had that uh, uh, figurative work, which is now at the same level as the uh, abstract work. Um, uh, Hunk, the famous Hunk and Moo Anderson, uh, and and uh, even the artist George Kondo. So, I mean, the the if 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 collecting is sometimes being part of a peer group, that's a hell of a peer group uh, to to belong to. And it doesn't sound like people are eager to sell the the works. I mean, it's been very interesting since Hauser took over representation. 
certainly uh, uh, Musa Mayer was very keen to give them, uh, you know, great credit. One of the reasons she could make these donations is that the, they they did well by her, and the family's very uh, uh, happy, and they had made an endowment along with. Um, uh, the works at, at the Met. I, I'm leading up to sort of saying is 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 it work better as a private market, uh, and is it something about you know you've got these very big paintings, you've got very small paintings uh, of the late work. Uh, it's sort of not a lot in between, and I'm sort of wondering as a collector whether that kind of uh, uh, makes the market work differently. Um, well, first of all, the uh, the stylist that you've uh, quoted, most of these people they bought in the '80s and in the '90s, so very early on, and major works. Uh, I mean, Ed Broider, Ed Broider was one of the first big collectors. Guston, uh, I think. He bought in 1976 or seven. He became a, a Guston's friend, and he bought in Belk. Um, Donald Blinken uh, bought a work in the 50s, and the second work in the 70s, the the the, uh, the one that's on the cover of uh, uh, Robert Stroh's book. Uh, he bought it a year after it had been painted. So they're all early, um, very early collectors, and most of them American. Now the big change, uh, maybe it's thanks to Hauser or. Uh, or other forces in the market, this I don't know, but probably mainly thanks to Hauser, is that the collector base has become more international. Uh, before Hauser took over, you had um, some works in, in the UK, obviously, very good works, uh, a few in Germany, uh, and basically that that was it. Now, when Hauser took over, um, it really expanded the market for whatever uh, important work were left for sale. Uh, especially towards the Asian market, and uh, surprisingly enough, uh, to France and Italy. So uh, these are markets that are not obvious for Gaston, because he's never been a, you know, a household name in those countries. So this, I think, uh, is mainly houses work, yes. Uh, McKee had started already. I mean, someone like myself, for instance, I'm French, so uh, and I, I bought with McKee. So, uh, uh, But uh, really, Hauser gave a you know, a, a large expense to the private market for Gaston. The issue we have with uh, auctions is that um, since 2007, I would say, uh, with the exception of uh, the abstract work I mentioned to Fellini in 2013, so since 2007, there, there hasn't been a, um, an actual masterpiece, uh, an, actual, an actual late masterpiece by Gaston. Uh, been waiting for one, but it hasn't come up. So there's no real benchmark. Uh, the McClough sale is a bit of a freak uh, event because it's more of a McClough Guston than a masterpiece by Guston. It's a very important Guston, but there are much better works. You know, so the price it achieved, $21 million, I think, or around that, uh, was mostly due to the McClough name and, you know, the, all the hype uh, around that collection. Uh so we're still expecting, uh, you know, that big masterpiece piece, one which came up in 2007, which was uh, sold by Christie's and which at the time uh, made $7 million, roughly, or 6.5, uh, which would call, was called Head and Bottle. Uh, that type of work uh, hasn't come up. Um, so that's the main issue we have. We have... Um, do, you, do, you, do you think there are sufficient works uh, of that caliber in private hands to achieve that, uh, you know, public kind of price, because one of the interesting things about uh, the show and the donation is uh, 
she held at least one. I would think that the the studio painting of um, the hooded figure painting the hooded figure on the e easel, even though it's not a very large painting in some ways, is kind of, you know, the act uh, Augustine, that if that came to market, it it would uh, potentially set a very high price. They're not interested in that, uh, so that that's no longer uh, a possibility. So that that you know, it, I'm assuming there are are works that you would consider uh, like the Head and Bottle that are still in private hands that have the potential to be sold to you know signal to the the, the rest of the market that this is the. The sort of price point that, uh, or at least the structure of the prices that uh, uh, Gustin belongs. In. So um, let's put it this way: Gustin will never be Monet, that's for sure. Uh, whatever Roberta Smith says in her, in her uh, latest piece, he, he's <laughs> never been. A, I mean, he was never a prolific artist. There are only, uh, I think, something like twelve hundred paintings altogether, a little more maybe. But so uh, if you consider that about sixty percent of the, the whole output is already in museums, uh, counting the uh, the recent donation, it leaves you with about <clears throat> 10 works maybe 10 really major masterpieces which may or may not come to the market so uh that's uh of course uh you know that's a bit uh, limited for uh, a market needs supply that's for sure uh, so um as far as the uh, small panels are concerned they're also very rare and the last one which came up which had two hoods on a gray background uh, was sold uh, from a private english collection at christie's and you know, it's a 12 by 13 inch painting on the panel it made a million and a half uh 1.5 million dollars so uh, you know, these ra these rare uh works when they can't they do come, if they do come up yes uh, we might expect quite a big price uh, if if two fellini ever came back uh, to the market, um, it probably would exceed the $25 million mark that it reached uh, in 2013. Um, now, um, this brings me to one thought I have about Musa's donation. I think it's a fantastic gift. Uh, it's uh, a fantastic uh, generosity. Uh, and she chose the right museum. Uh, I, mean, I would have been surprised if he, she had chosen MoMA, for instance, for various reasons. What, 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 one of the main reasons, let me interrupt you just to point out, let me say it for you. One of the main reasons is they have a number of his works from Broida donated to them that they never show. Yes. <laughs> and they've had plenty of opportunity to do their, their, their bit for, for Gustin, and it just hasn't been a priority. And no one could blame her for feeling like this is not the, uh, why go back to the water, or the well for, if you've not gotten your water before. Exactly. Uh, so, um, yeah, so uh, we have this issue that uh, top quality works are still to be seen uh, at least at auction. So, um, but one day they will appear and it will be the real test. Uh, uh, other than that, we have uh, good works or very good works, which might exceed the $10 million mark. Uh, but that's a sort of um, a glass ceiling. You know, uh, for those works, uh, I would say they're not iconic enough because the iconic ones are either in museums or will be, or uh, they're in those collections which probably don't need to sell. Uh, one day they will, maybe. Now, as far as the studio is concerned, I have a small story. I mean, I when I started collecting Gustin, I was a naive uh, collector, and I kept asking McKeith, uh, you know, the studio might ever be for sale. And, you know, he, he wouldn't even answer. You know, he would stare down on me. 
and you know, uh, just like, who, who the hell is this guy? And so uh, yeah, it was never supposed to. It was never meant to be sold. On the back of the studio, uh, Gustin wrote NFS, which is not for sale, artist collection. So it was never meant to be sold. So um, well, I, I think that's a, a great opportunity to to bring up a point that Musa Mayer made uh, uh, at the show, which is you know this. Uh, the criticism she received for not spreading the works around to many museums, one, ignores the fact that a lot of work has been dis uh, dispersed to many museums around the country over both her mother's lifetime and, and her lifetime. And, you know, she wrote this extraordinary memoir, very raw, you know, uh, memoir of herself and her father. And as a work of art, it's actually quite brilliant because it's clear that her father is, to someone so intimate with him, was quite unknowable. And her only way to know him was through the reflection of his effect on her. And that's this this constant thing where she can't explain a lot of the work because he that he was charming, he was engaging, but he was not forthcoming. He was clearly very self-absorbed and troubled and, you know, sort of pursued by this, um, you know, need to create something that even he didn't uh, uh, understand. But he also had a clear goal in marking these paintings not for sale. And she viewed it as, uh, you know, since he died and since she wrote the memoir, a big part of her life's work has been getting her father's recognition. And so I think you're absolutely right. Um, um, a world historical museum of that caliber to take this on in a in a, an arrangement that <clears throat> guarantees the work will be seen, uh, not 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 imprisoned in one uh, exhibition, but, you know, often on uh, on view. And more importantly, that these works that he marked, and then other works that I think she feels belong with them. I mean, those those late acrylic uh, works, which are very uh, striking and powerful, they're all going with, with that. And that's the same sort of thing is like, you could see a lot of this stuff, it would be very tempting. And I'm sure a lot of people would like to, to buy the those uh, works. And her feeling was, we did. We 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 accomplished what we needed to do for ourselves, and I need to accomplish this for my father. And and like I said, the show is a part of it, since so much of the show is also that uh, a donation is really getting people in uh, Europe, people you know, at the stature of the National Gallery, to really come through and see uh, who this artist was. So it's in that sense, it's also a very poignant uh, uh, moment in all this. Yeah. So uh, by the way, I recommend the. Uh the reading of her book because it's a really uh, fantastic book really not not only about art and gustin it's a really uh, a poignant book as you say uh, as far as her donation is concerned there is one last point i want to make uh, it's not unheard of uh, the national gallery in washington received 285 works by rothko uh, some years ago so you know um, it didn't do uh, nothing in the way of uh, unbalancing the collection so and it's not unheard of i think it's an incredibly generous uh, gift but it's not unheard of and by the way it didn't harm uh, rothko's market so uh, but Rothko was more prolific than Gustin, so that's the uh, <laughs> issue I see as the supply. But, uh, well, we don't we don't know how prolific Gustin was when you read so many of these stories of him staying up all night and having this, you know, an epiphany in this extraordinary painting, waking up his wife across the street and showing it to her at four o'clock in the morning, and then sometime in the morning, you know, uh, destroying it because it it didn't live up to his expectations. There's sort of no telling, and we know from his early work he destroyed a lot of uh, of that as well. 
well. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, no, no, he just uh, he speaks about that destroying uh, destruction. He speaks. Uh, he mentions that uh, the, the concept of destruction in his work. A market needs supply to come back to the market. So what we need is supply. I mean, he's uh, as I said, he's not Monet. Monet. Uh, I don't know how many thousands of works you have by Monet. He's got twenty-four thousand Warhols, twelve thousand Du Buffet. You know, that's uh, so uh, call those uh, prolific artists, but Gaston is not far from it. So um, that's the main issue I see for the market. I I, I also think there's that second issue. Uh, the panels uh, are sort of their own body of work, but the large paintings, another striking aspect of the um, Marlborough recreation is that here are all works created within, you know, a few years of each other and they look very different. You know, there are some that are, you know, very sort of tightly painted and then some that are very loosely uh, uh, painted, even though there's this similar uh, iconography through them. That's about the only thing they have in co common. It, it very much, you can see his very several different styles all in, in these um, paintings hanging right next to each other from the same period. So there's what you were saying earlier about people, you know, they, they like to know that this is a, you know, a, a this era work or this style. I mean, we, we've talked about the Thibault market. One of the interesting things about it is that he's such a consistent painter over time that now people realize that they can buy a work from, you know, 2010 and it's of the same quality as the 60s work and they're getting the imagery and, and so forth. Not so much with Gustin's kind of, you know, there's all sorts of different work. Uh, some of it that looks, it all looks like Augustine, but it's 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 quite different. Yeah, the uh, but still, uh, you know, I've been people asking me about, uh, you know, can I get a, a great Gustin abstract work from the fifties? It's uh, you know, it's nearly impossible to find. There are only two or three in private hands, major ones. So um, you know that that's that's I mean, he is in that sense is it's like getting a Pollock. You can't get a Pollock. So, um, but, uh, but the price is totally different. This is why I'm saying that he's still very much underrated. Yeah, uh, by any standard, he is underrated. He should be uh, thirty to forty percent more expensive than what he is. So you, and as time goes by, he is important in the uh, American uh, canon art history uh, and so forth is growing, which may not be the case for his peers. So. Uh, well, and this show is certainly meant to be part of that. And these kinds of shows, they can break either way. I mean, this this could be that that uh, thing that changes his market in a year or two. It could also be, you know, again, he's he's a uh, I don't want to call him an academic artist, but he's uh, may end up being an artist more. Uh, uh, let's call him a connoisseur's artist. That there are going to be the, the uh, you know again the kinds of collectors we've already mentioned. Uh, involved in it, but it may not be a, a successful market artist that way. Now, there's another point. Um, if you do the rounds of young artists or uh, mid-career artists that are currently active, especially in New York, but even in other places, um, uh, is uh, Pollock, Klein, de Kooning their uh, real influence? No. They will all quote Gustin, uh, Nicole Eisenman, uh, Amy Selman, Baselitz, uh, they all, uh, even uh, Cecily Brown. You know, these people are working now, they're in their 40s, 50s, uh, some of them are, are older, even younger people. They all quote Gustin, and it has always been like this ever since he died. Uh, in the 70s, the only people who were, um, who were visiting McKee to see the Gustins were artists. You know, so that's also a, a characteristic of Philip Gustin. He's a, he's a trailblazer to artists. So, you know, which again may not be the case for um, his peers. 
Well, that, that seems as good a place to end as any. Claude, thank you. I appreciate the, the time. So very good to talk to you, Marianne. Thank you for joining us at the Intelligence Podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin, who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Intelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it. <laughs>